as Jeremy and I talk through the big story of Scripture and try to see those grand themes that uh, the, the, the overarching story of the Bible then brings to fruition in the New Testament, the one that we're on today is of particular significance. We talked a few weeks ago about the most devastating, the worst event in the history of the Old Testament people of God, the exile from Jerusalem, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, the last vestige of any leadership being taken away, led captive into Babylon. It's an exile that lasted 70 years. Finally, finally, we talked about a few weeks ago, Someone comes who allows the Israelites to return home. Isaiah predicted it. Isaiah chapter 40. God raised up Cyrus and said, You go home. You rebuild. Make your nation again. Say prayers for my empire. Say prayers for my political ambitions. And I allow you, all those who have been exiled, to return. It was a great moment. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. The people came back, but what did they come back to? They came back to a city that had no walls, that was inhabited by wildlife, overgrown by weeds. If you've ever watched any of the dozens and dozens of post-apocalyptic shows that are on our airwaves or in our movie theaters, you got a pretty good idea of what the exiles returned to. It's a devastated landscape. And they start to rebuild. They build houses to keep themselves warm and safe. But the next thing they do, after they've been able to establish the houses and establish the crops that will keep them fed, they all gather together as a nation. And this event that's recorded here in Ezra chapter 3 takes place. The second year, they come together and they rebuild first the sacrifice altar, restart the sacrifices, and second, the temple. They lay the cornerstones. They lay out the foundations. They start to raise the walls. And when the people see this happening, shouts of joy. Shouts of joy. There are some old people who remember the old temple. This temple's not going to be a patch on the old one. It's not going to be nearly as grand. It's not going to be nearly as beautiful. There probably will never be another building as beautiful as the one that Solomon built. But but even so, this is a magnificent moment that we finally get to rebuild God's temple. What do you think those people, what did that moment mean to them that they were so excited? The people who had grown up, most of the ones who participated in this, only the very old could remember back. Most of them had grown up never seeing Jerusalem. This was their first time. Never seeing the old temple, this was their first time. They had heard stories about it. They had read, uh, had read to them stories about it. But what do you think it meant to them? 
to finally be beginning to rebuild God's house. Well, as we've gone through the big story, we kind of know. We can piece together what was in their minds. What does God's house mean? What does having God's temple in the land mean? It means you are saying to God, come and dwell with us once more. Right? And so after 70 years of being parched for the presence of God, they are saying, come and live among us like you used to. Come and make your presence resident in the old land of promise. Rebuilding the temple after the exile meant inviting God to come and be present in the land again. That's a big deal. It was a big deal when they built the temple the first time, when they built the tabernacle the first time. And it's a big deal now when they rebuild what has been lost through their own sin, through the rebellion of the people. They lost everything, and now, laboriously, stone upon stone, they're going to rebuild a place to which they can invite God to come and reign over them as king once more, to be their God once more, to be present in the place where they are present. I want you to think about the symbolic journey that this, towards the end of the Old Testament, what this represents. Go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 in your mind. Exodus chapter 20 is, in many ways, the foundation of the nation of Israel. It's the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence all rolled into one. God speaks from Mount Sinai. And he announces what the laws are, the ten words, the ten laws that will guide the people of Israel. They said earlier, yes, we'll do what you've asked us to do. We will be your people. And God says what his law is. Do you remember how the people responded in Exodus chapter 20? Look at verses 18 and 19 of Exodus chapter 20. The people say, basically, Don't let him talk again. Moses, you go up and talk. Here's a people who for 400 years have been captive in Egypt. They've actually come to the place where God has come down and made Himself present on the top of the mountain. And speaking from the top of the mountain, has said, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you. And the people say, the presence of God is too scary for us. Moses, you go up. You talk to God for us. You remember that? That's the story of Israel almost in a nutshell. Were they excited to be at Sinai? They were excited to be there. It was great. Were they terrified to be in the presence of God? They were indeed. God is both terrifying and awesome. Awful and awesome at the same time. 
people at the foot of Mount Sinai say, can we keep God at a distance? It's interesting. Here in Jerusalem, the people say, we've got to build this house as fast as we can so that God will be back with us. We want to invite God here to be with us. All human beings have that same tension in their hearts, in my opinion. Every one of us has great attraction to God, the highest, the holiest, the best that we ever encounter, we realize are just pointers to what God is. The more we think about what God is and who God is, the more we realize I can't help loving God. Even atheists who don't think there is a God love what God would be if He were real. It's fascinating to me. The more I read them, the more obvious that becomes to me. God, we love. And at the same time, God, we fear. God gets too close. And what's going on in my life starts looking uglier. God's presence gets near me. And what I'm doing starts to stink in my own nose. I want God. I want to push God away. It's not just Israel that struggles with God. It's all human beings that are in this struggle. The name Israel actually means struggles with God or God struggles. But that's true of every human being that exists. You've been struggling with God your whole life. I've been struggling with God my whole life. There's a part of me that wants to push God away and keep Him away forever. There's a part of me that wants to fall all the way into God and, and could never get enough. The temple represents saying... The part of me that wants God near is winning. I want to bring God more deeply into my life. And so it is a sober moment to me when after 70 years the exiles come back to this ruined landscape. And the first thing they do, you notice they did this way before they even built the defenses back up for the city. The first thing they want to do, let's get the altar built, let's get the temple built. Because we need God back in our land. If we're going to be anything at all, we need God back here. Same thing is true for you. Same thing is true for me. Rebuilding the temple after the exile meant inviting God to come and be present in the land again. And God blessed that temple. There are many things that come as a result of building that temple. Eventually the walls are able to, he raises up leaders like Nehemiah, and the walls are able to be rebuilt as well. Jerusalem once again becomes a functioning, defensible city that can work as the capital of these people. 
But even so, during the period of the exile, there are people who never make it back. Even after people start returning to Jerusalem, even after the temple is rebuilt, there are people who continue to have to live far away from Jerusalem. Even those who come back to Jerusalem, the revelation of God continues that there's a bigger plan even than just the rebuilding of this building here in this city. Tons of passages in the Old Testament that talk about this. We may go back to some of them later in this series. But for now, I just want you to focus in on on Malachi, last book in our Bible, the way we organize the Old Testament, last book in our Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, God promises. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Even though the temple is built, even though Jerusalem is built, even though the exiles Many of them have been able to return and reestablish lives. By the time Malachi is written, the people have been back for multiple generations. <coughs> God had a bigger plan. He had said that to the pre, the, the prophets before the exile. He had said it during the exile. He said it after the exile through many prophets. God had a bigger plan to spread His temple presence over the whole world. What does it mean when it says, incense and pure offerings will be offered to me in every place? From the east to the west. It means this one place, which I have designated my dwelling place, will soon be too small. My presence has to outgrow these four walls. Now, he didn't reveal exactly how this was going to work. He didn't give the prophets the details. They saw dimly, as we still do sometimes. They saw dimly as through a veil. They longed to look into these things, but it wasn't given to them to know all the details. But God said, you watch. There's coming a way in which the special temple presence I have in this place will spread from east to west to every place. And that was part of what the Jews expected. That was part of what rolls into that whole messianic expectation of Israel. When the Christ comes, the Anointed One comes, the Messiah comes... What will happen? Well, part of it has to be somehow, some way, this spreading out of the temple presence of God. Flash forward to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. Now, we believe Jesus cleaned the temple towards the end of His ministry, but John, when he tells the story, takes that story and opens with it almost. Puts it in chapter 2 because he wants you to be thinking about that event. 
as a filter for everything that follows. Does it mean that Jesus did that twice? Well, that's certainly possible. It probably just means this is the way John wants you to be focused as he starts to tell you about Jesus. And he tells the story of Jesus cleaning the temple and people come up and challenge Jesus. What right do you have to act like this, driving people out of the temple? We can do whatever we want in God's temple. We're, we're the ones who have authority over it. If we say the money changers can be here, they can be here. What right do you have, Jesus, to act like this? And the conflict begins to build, as we know. And there was a plot already afoot by the time these events took place to kill Jesus. And so Jesus answers this way, John records, John 2, verses 19 through 21. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. And then he goes on. The Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple that was his body. Jesus said, right there standing in the restored temple of God, in fact, by that time, it was a pretty magnificent building. The building the Jews were able to build when they came back from Babylon was not that grand, was not a patch, really, on what Solomon had built. But by this time, a half-Jewish king, a king by the name of Herod, had poured, in today's currency, millions of dollars into expanding and beautifying the temple. And it was actually something the Jews were once again very proud of. They pointed to this Structure with four walls and all of its outbuildings and courtyards. One rabbi said, he who has never seen the temple in Jerusalem has never seen a beautiful building. Most beautiful building in the world, in other words. It was something the Jews were once again proud of. And Jesus looked at what was around him, at what he had just acted like he owned the place. He came in and Drove out the money changers. And he said, this box is not really all that relevant anymore. The temple is right here. This body. He pointed to himself, at least mentally, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. This temple's been work, people have been working on this temple for 46 years. They didn't understand. The disciples didn't even understand. Jesus was actually the temple of God. You read through the Gospel of John. If you read it through that lens, you will see evidence of that over and over again. Actually, if you go back and read the other Gospels, through that lens, you see evidence of that over and over again. We've spoken about this frequently. Wherever Jesus walks, He is now the temple presence of God. First, chronologically, first gospel we have is the gospel of Mark. Everybody who sees Jesus is amazed or confused. 
Because they're used to having this love of God and this fear of God struggling within them. And then they see Jesus. And I think the same thing starts happening with Him. It's this odd, unfamiliar, familiar feeling when Jesus shows up. We never had anybody talk like Him like this before. Who is this that can speak to winds and waves and they do whatever He says? Who is this that can cast out demons just with a word? Who is this that can reach out and and heal diseases? It's like God being with us in the shape of a human being. God. God's temple presence walking around on two legs. Going to parties. Sleeping on the ground. Giving little lessons in the synagogue. That's Jesus. When Jesus came, wherever He was, was the temple presence of God. Lots of passages we could go to to illustrate that. But the one that probably is a good transition passage is this one in Acts. Peter and the other apostles, several days after Pentecost, are in trouble because they've healed somebody. They've healed somebody in the name of Jesus that the rulers of the Jews have condemned as a blasphemer and a threat to Rome. They use Jesus' name and the healing is obvious and everybody in Jerusalem knows that this lame man can walk again and that the name that was invoked over him is Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter's in trouble and he stands up and we have this little episode Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a crucial moment, because Peter is finally, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, realizing what's happened. When Jesus was walking around on earth, He Himself called Himself the chief cornerstone. And now Peter picks up that language. Jesus, wherever He was, was the temple presence of God. What's happening to that temple presence now? It turns out, Jesus has put Himself into the foundations of the people of God. And they are now being built into the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new thing that's happening. It's just a few days old, several days old at this point, I suppose. The church that started on the day of Pentecost, with Jesus as its foundation... 
Wherever Jesus was, was the temple presence of God. And Peter says, now Jesus is still here acting through us. And of course, that kind of like a, an avalanche. It starts small and it just builds through the rest of the New Testament. We've also talked about this in previous sermons Many, many passages illustrate this. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22 is a pretty awesome one. And he came and he preached, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is Paul talking about this strange thing that happened where the Jews who had been following God's law and, and reading God's Scriptures for generations. And the Gentiles, who had just been doing all kinds of pagan and horrible things, and it looks as if they'll never be together, and, they, and they're, gonna, they're bound to be hatred between them forever. And Paul's describing this amazing thing that happens with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he brought them back together, and he says... He preached peace to you who are far off, you Gentiles who are far off, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through Him you both have access to the one Spirit of God the Father. In one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what's happened. The temple represents God's presence, a place where the the boundaries between heaven and earth grow thin, and God is here. Jesus comes and He becomes that. And now, Jesus has resurrected, and His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, fills His church, and so the church becomes that. As we are built into the church founded on Jesus, we are bringing God's temple presence wherever we are. It's a great moment when Moses builds the tabernacle. And he's done everything that he saw on Mount Sinai. And, and everything has been cleansed and washed and purified with blood. And then all of a sudden, the presence of God, the Shekinah, this spiritual event takes place. And the tabernacle is filled with God's glory. Same thing happens when Solomon builds the temple and everything's purified with blood. And the sacrifices have been offered. And everything's been set in place. And God's Spirit, God's presence comes into and occupies the temple. If you invite God in, you better be ready. If you say, God, come here, 
You need to mean it. Because God will come. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, decide they can stand on equal footing with God. God's nice and all. He got us up and running. But we can have our own little kingdom based on our own idea of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. We can be equal with God. They eat the forbidden fruit. And an odd thing happens. The next thing, after they realize they were naked, God's presence shows up in the Garden of Eden. I imagine hundreds of times God's presence had showed up, walking in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden. How do you think Adam and Eve responded? God's here! God's here! Let's go meet God! How did they respond this time? Oh no. God's here. Run and hide yourself. Ever since Adam and Eve's fall, human beings have had that second impulse when God shows up. Run and hide yourself. You do not want to be near that. Get as far away from it as you can. As soon as your mind starts to think about God... Find ways to suppress it. Find ways to deflect it. Find ways to push it out of your mind or at least neutralize it. Get away from God. And maybe God will stay away from you. And here, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, an amazing thing starts happening in the first century and continues to this day. God worked on you and built on you and got you to a point where you could be purified with the blood of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so you were washed in the blood. You were baptized. And when you came up out of that water, just like happened at the tabernacle, just like happened at the old temple of Solomon, The Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God, the glory of God came into you. He is here with us right now. You've still got the remnants of the fall in your heart. I've still got that in my heart. There's a part of me that still wants to run away from God. But because God has been working in my heart before and after my conversion, because God's Holy Spirit is now in me, there is a part of me which is stronger that says, No! Come! Be present here now! You and I are the temple presence of God. When we are together, and even when we're out in the world, you and I are the temple of God's glory. This is where God is. 
with the priests, as well as the temple itself. First Peter says, you're a holy priesthood. We're the sacrifice. Paul says, Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says to the Philippians, I've received everything, a pleasing aroma. The money we give to support good causes. Also the sacrifices. Revelations 5 says, our prayers are the incense. Rising in God's new temple. There's even, I didn't realize this until I studied for this, sir. There's even a lampstand reference. I've read it my whole life and I never made this connection. You're the lampstand in the temple. Because you are the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it down under a barrel. They put it on a lampstand so it can give light to the whole world. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you're living with the inheritance God has given to you. I don't know if you are claiming the blessings that God has given to you. But what you are is God's temple presence in the middle of a world that desperately needs God. Now, it's true on the left and on the right, there are people who are still deeply caught in the spirit of Genesis chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 20. Run from God. He's too scary. No, I don't want God's presence in my life. No, I'm terrified of what that would mean. It might remake me. It might change me. It might turn me into something I'd, I couldn't recognize if I saw it. I, I don't. I'm terrified of the Spirit of God. But you and I, because the Spirit has been working on us, we have been moved again and again and again to say, no, I really do want more God in my life. I really do want God's presence in my life. I really do want the people that I interact with to say, when they are near me, I feel closer to God. That is what you are. Every one of us can live in that truth, or we can continue to fight against it. But if you're baptized Christian, Faith in Jesus Christ. That is what you are. That is your heritage. Until Jesus comes back and then on through eternity, that is what you and I have, been caught, have become. If you need to respond to God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ, to take us from utter aliens and build us into the temple of God. Build His temple across the entire world. That's His plan. If you want to be part of that plan, if you need to be baptized today so that can begin to happen in your life, if you need to be restored or fixed up in any way, if there's something you need to share with the church publicly, or if there's anything else we can do for you, why don't you come as we stand and are led in song.